Welcome to Connected Learning TV at Educator Innovator. Today is Wednesday, November 29th, and we're pre-recording a webinar for December's reading for the Marginal Syllabus. I'm the host for this conversation. I'm Joe Dillon. I'm a teacher consultant with the Denver Writing Project and a teacher at Rangeview High School in Aurora, Colorado. So we've got a, a big group here to discuss the December reading. And so I want to begin by allowing our guests to introduce themselves. So thanks everyone for coming in. Would you please just introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Linda Christensen. I'm the director of the Oregon Writing Project and a longtime writing project teacher consultant um, prior to that. And I'm in Portland, Oregon. Hi, my name is Andrea Zellner and I'm coming to you here from Michigan and I'm a Red Cedar Writing Project teacher consultant. Hi everyone, uh, so my name is Kevin Hodgson and I teach sixth grade out in Western Massachusetts. Um, and like uh, a lot of others here, I'm connected to the Writing Project. In my case, um, I'm uh, one of the co-directors at the Western Massachusetts Writing Project. And I'm Ramey Collier. I'm an assistant professor of information and learning technologies at the University of Colorado in Denver. And I'm one of the co-organizers and facilitators of the Marginal Syllabus Project, which is partnering with the National Writing Project. Thanks for that. So to say a little bit more about the project, Marginal Syllabus is a project that convenes and sustains equity conversations in the margins of texts online using, using the digital annotation tool Hypothesis. So we'll provide more details about the project in a bit, but I wanna begin by having the author of this month's piece, Linda, tell us a little bit about you know, maybe the class she wrote about in her writing, and just maybe some background about writing the article. Well, um, I was asked to write the article by um, the editors of Voices in the Middle, and um, William Stafford has a poem um, or a book of uh, poetry called um, uh, Starting a like starting a car on ice or something like that, and I felt like that was a little bit. Um, uh, of how it felt getting this article going because I've written so much about teaching for social justice and equity and so to try to synthesize it into one article was difficult. Um, and so I was thinking about when I when I wrote it, I was thinking about the ways in which um, so many of my students at Jefferson High School um, were, were, were called disadvantaged and how um, that really was such a problematic term and how often when students are in, um, are in high poverty schools, um, are high numbers of students of color, that they automatically get that kind of title or automatically get the title of struggling, automatically get a lot of testing and um, and skill development as if they are blank slates that we need to fill. And I think that for me, um, the, the article came out of that, of talking back to that, that, that really um, the most important thing that we can see, I think, as teachers is the value of all of the knowledge and lived experience that students have when they enter our classroom. And that our job is to tap into that and figure out ways um, as language arts teachers, um, especially 
how to use their stories and their lives, um, their imaginations, their fierce independence, their wit, um, and use it um, as tools in the classroom. And so that was the piece of the article that, um, that I think I was trying to get at was how um, we need to situate our pedagogy in students' lives. And that, that also means like finding um, texts that, um, that speak to them. And um, you know, one of the stories I tell in there is um, that Bill Bigelow and I um, were teaching a class and, and the student said, well, she tallied up the, um, the racial background of everybody in class and said, well, I think actually Asians should have 12% of the curriculum. And I thought, well, that is so odd because isn't that the way that kind of things are figured out these days? Like, well, you have, you know, 100% white students, therefore you don't need to worry about teaching, you know, August Wilson or something. And so that, that um, I, I wavered a lot about what did that mean to teach, um, what kinds of novels and what kinds of, um, materials should I be giving students over time and you know kind of came to the to the idea that it there needs to be multiple voices and that's you know speaks to I think what it means to be in the margins that everybody is in the margins in some kind of ways and we need to keep pulling those stories back in and seeing the ways in which we are all connected so that's really helpful background. And again, the article is titled Critical Literacy in Our Students' Lives, and it was published in the March 2017 edition of Voices from the Middle. And so I've read the piece and I think it's, it was really an inspiring piece for me. And I'm curious if you can talk a little bit just about the social justice stance you take in, in the classroom. I just came from the National Writing Project's annual meeting, and I was able to attend some sessions at NCTE, and I was really interested in, in um, sessions that talked about teachers rejecting uh, neutrality. So teachers taking a, a stance or a, you know, a social justice stance or a civic action stance in the classroom. Can you talk a little bit about that stance? Yeah, and I think that, you know, I think that's really an interesting take. I mean, I think that um, for me, the, um, what I want to be wary of is, um, is leading students, um, that I want them to come to ideas. I mean, I wanna I provide lots of materials um, so that they come to their own ideas and that sometimes I think a mistaken approach to social justice education is to believe that our stance is their stance. And so, um, but I think that we can um, curate pieces um, that help students see his, the historical relevance and, um, Im and um, importance of what has happened in the past as a way of looking at literature and their own lives. And so, for example, one of the um, things I talk about in the article is the gentrification unit that I did. And if we can't understand gentrification today, and this is where I think the social justice piece is, is we have to ask who benefited from something and who was harmed. 
and what kind of reparations need to be made. And so if we look at what is happening with gentrification all over the country, we have to start back um, you know, to the beginning of the century at least or prior to that. And we have to look at land theft. And so we can't just read something like um, Raisin in the Sun or August Wilson's Jitney or Renee Watson's This Side of Home and, um, and not understand the historical background. And so the historical background is the theft of land through, um, through slavery, through the um, dissolution of, um, of native lands, um, through the reservation system, by the Mexican-American War, um, by urban renewal, by redlining, by all the kinds of ways in which um, land was taken from especially people of color, but also of poor people. And so that, to me, social justice education gets at the, gets at the roots of inequality. And so that whenever we're doing a unit, that we have to step, that we have to go back. So it doesn't just start with a novel. It starts with what's the history behind this novel that we need to understand in order to, um, in order to, to more fully understand the novel or understand what's happening in our own lives. Okay, and I think, you know, it's important to note that, you know, I think that provides background for the discussion we want to transition to, which is a discussion of the reading of the text. And I just appreciate your, you know, your willingness to share your background as an educator and even the thinking, you're thinking through like um, how you approach curricula in your classroom. So I think that provides us awesome background for the discussion we want to have about the text here. Um, just to segue a little bit now, I think it's, we'll, we'll provide a little project background before we dive into kind of a book group discussion. So, um, Ramey, if you wouldn't mind, would you please uh, just provide a little bit more background about marginal syllabus for any interested viewers who are, are clear now about the piece, but unclear about the other nature, the other aspects of this project? I will, thanks, Joe. So, we in the marginal syllabus utilize a very intentional technical and political double entendre that speaks to much of what Linda was just discussing. So, we, of course, embrace uh, working with partner authors, their texts, their perspectives that might be considered marginal to dominant narratives of schooling. And so Linda's earlier comments, I was jotting a few notes here about talking back to negative perceptions of students, about bringing the stories and the lives of students fully into the classrooms. And Joe, your comments about maybe educators not being neutral in classroom spaces, about taking strong political stances, that's very much at the heart of the marginal syllabus and engaging with authors who write about those views. And of course, this is also a technical double entendre. We then curate conversations with educators in an open and public fashion through the technology of web annotation, which then brings digital texts to life by enlightening and enlivening the margins. And we use a open source technology, a free technology called Hypothesis to do so. And we launched the Marginal Syllabus Project during all of last academic year. And during the 2016-17 academic year, we had nine conversations over nine months with 10 different partner authors and had over 60 educators join into those conversations. And this year, we're a partnership with the National Writing Project and Educator Innovator. They're hosting a thematic syllabus of texts organized around the theme, writing our civic futures. And so all of the authors, all of those partnerships, 
and all of the texts that we're reading attest to the need to critically examine notions of citizenship, youth civic engagement, civic media, and the kinds of critical literacies that Linda writes about in her article. And so again, throughout the month of December and during one particular week, we're really gonna dive deep into her text. Uh, Linda's um, article that we've mentioned, Critical Literacy in Our Students' Lives, will be hosted online, and we invite educators to use the hypothesis technology and read her text, and then jump into a social reading through collaborative annotation. And we've had regular participation, uh, for example, from folks like Kevin, who have regularly joined those conversations and contributed uh, to those conversations. And so we look forward to having that public and open conversation with Linda's texts as we move into the month of December. Terrific. Yeah, and so we look forward to the actual like marking up of the text. And, and so, you know, this webinar, obviously, we've, we've also invited readers. And so our readers this time are Andrea and Kevin. And of course, you know, Ramey and myself are also readers. But I'm, you know, I want to kick the conversation over to Andrea and Kevin, who, you know, have in the past participated in the margins and probably are, you know, are looking forward to doing so in December. But probably at this point, they've, they've read likely a PDF copy of the text, and they might be looking forward to what the heck they're going to write in the margin. So I just want to um, get your first takes on this article and, and sort of maybe questions you have or, or uh, responses that came to you as you read. Okay, well, do you want me to start, Kevin, or you want to start? Oh, okay, I'm starting. Hi. Um, so I, funnily enough, like thinking through about how we read in the margins, I have so many thoughts jumbled up in my mind, but just logistically, I printed out this article <laughs> and physically annotated it, uh, which I do with many of the articles that I end up annotating online because there's something about that interaction between just myself, and I'm so sorry about my phone ringing all of a sudden, but just myself and uh, the text that it becomes really important. And so that's really where I start is just like, what am I bringing to it? And then what is going to happen when I go online? Oh, Kevin, I think you can now respond since Andrea doesn't want to. <laughs> it's not me calling you. <laughs> uh, well, she's saying kind of what i'm what i kind of was thinking too so i also printed it out and i started to annotate it with my green kind of pen <laughs> but it was interesting because um i i mean i do this but not all the time but i was thinking um as i was sitting there quietly doing it uh how different the experience is from when we use um hypothesis and the kind of in the big crowd kind of source annotation uh, where you really feel like you're part of a larger conversation, I think, um, as opposed to um, here it's just me and, well, now I know Linda, right? Uh, but I didn't know her before um, and her words on the page. Um, and, you know, there's certainly a lot of power to that, but I, I think the idea of joining in a bigger conversation and um, particularly if there's back and forth about um, what's being said on the page, I think that gives it um, a whole, you know, a, a different element to it and I actually had read Linda's piece uh, when in the middle came out so I recognized it when, when it came through in the PDF as well um, and you know part of what I was uh, thinking about as I was reading her piece was the journey that she kind of documents herself as a teacher and kind of looking at um, uh, where she was at this at the beginning of the kind of timeline 
um, and what kind of brought her along that path to uh, all the things she just talked about here with us as she's uh, reflecting on the kind of writing of the piece. And it sounds like she's written um, elements of it in different places over over time. And um, this is a, another way to kind of retell the story and maybe clarify it along a certain kind of uh, line of looking at uh, the labels that her students get. So I think that is a kind of really powerful uh, piece of it. Um, so I'm thinking now like, okay, so when we, when we get it online into hypothesis, how am I going to kind of move some of this stuff into there? Um, my doodles will probably become like, uh, you know, memes and gifts and stuff like that. Um, so, um, but, uh, that idea, I think of, uh, of finding a, a way to have a conversation about important pieces is, is a really key thing for me. I did find myself, so normally in marginal and syllabus, what I do is I read all the comments first and then I'll go into the piece if I, you know, don't know it and then I'll go back and sort of start marking it up. So I did miss a little bit of that. But I do want to say what I loved about your piece, Linda, was the way that you honored the students' stories by telling your own story by taking the risk and saying here was a moment in my teaching where I felt like a fraud <laughs> essentially that they I gotten this big award and that I had pulled the wool over everyone's eyes and that is what started the conversation because I think one of the things about learning and writing and reading especially in our work around literacy is that it feels so risky like these stories feel so risky so no matter you were saying earlier about oh i'm a white teacher so i don't need and i'm a i'm teaching white students so i don't need to worry about multicultural lit that's not what my students need because they don't look like that um but i think there's also embedded in that message but i don't know how to talk about different cultures from me and my students because I've never had to confront my own weaknesses around cultural proficiency or confronting whitehood or whatever it is that I'm struggling with and how do I raise those issues in my classroom in a way that's sensitive to what my students are bringing but also scaffolds for them to really hard conversations about what our culture values and uh I just loved how you wove that all the way through this story, this very simple story. I think that every teacher can relate to that sort of like, I can't believe they left me alone with these kids. <laughs> they, you know, like I just, I went to teacher school and now I have to like make magic happen. I don't know how this is going to go. And we all have, can relate to that. And I think what you modeled for everybody was the way that that can become its own inquiry and what that inquiry can then reveal about your learners and what they then subsequently can learn from the inquiry. So it's like this beautiful cycle of reflection and learning. I really love that. That's a really good way to put it, I think. Yeah. I was thinking that as I was, because I was doing my annotation of the, the paper copy of the digital version of, <laughs> of the article. Um, that I had just read a blog post this morning um, from a teacher, and I think it's Dana Huff actually, who was writing about a similar struggle, uh, but with her it was uh, thinking about how to bring um, um, literature around um, gay identity into the classroom, and how difficult that was for her to kind of think about the balance, and it all came from kind of what you did, Linda, which is her stepping back and realizing she took stock of what she was doing, I think, and, and realized that there was a whole piece that probably her students needed to hear that they weren't hearing 
and her kind of role and trying to figure out how to make that fit. And I just, it was just interesting. I just read her blog post this morning. And then as I was annotating, that's when I made the connection between what she wrote and to what you wrote, you know? And so I think that kind of power of, uh, of thinking a text that way uh, and making those connections uh, is really valuable. And writing on hypothesis, you could have linked to that blog post. I will. See, I will. I made a note See? to myself to do that. Yeah, well, yeah. and I think that's the other thing, too, when we talk about being culturally proficient or teaching for social justice, that it's not just necessarily about ethnicity or race or culture or religion, but it's also gender identity and LGBTQ issues. And it's also about, I mean, I even think about how invisible disability is, um, in terms of what we do. And so, you know, the thing about being an English teacher that can be very empowering, but also very nerve wracking is that we are really these, the gateway to culture in many ways. We're the ones who say like, this is what the culture values. This is the canon. This is what we say is important. And it's Shakespeare and it's not this other thing. Um, and so that is a lot of responsibility, not only for how text complex it is, uh, but also for how we're inviting them into different ways of understanding a world that is very complicated, even for us adults. And I, again, want to go back to how brilliantly Linda scaffolded that article because by starting with the idea of a story instead of starting with you know the data about how many kids are like this or how the makeup of her students she started with herself and told this personal story as a way to get into that as a way to talk about how serving her students that driving force of how i meet my students where they are then opened up all of these other possibilities around social justice yeah. I want, I don't know, can I ask Linda a question? I mean, maybe you'll ask her this, Joe, but I mean, are you nervous about putting an article out there to be annotated by, you know, a public that you don't know? I, I guess I always wonder about the kind of backstages of an art of, because, so with hypothesis, you can basically annotate anything. Um, but here, um, you're being asked permission, which is awfully nice. Uh, but I, I'm curious, since you don't know much about or maybe you haven't used hypothesis. I guess I'm not sure about that. Like, what are you thinking is going to happen? <laughs> Sorry, Joe. <laughs> um, I think it's I think it's great. I'm really excited to see what people say. I I don't I have not used hypothesis, and I was when I talked to Joe earlier. I was saying, you know, are people using this in the classroom? Because while I don't use hypothesis, what I do use is I, you know, this is very old school, but I tape, um, uh, you know, articles onto big pieces of paper and students, um, both adult and, um, and, uh, and high school students write in the margins and we have a silent dialogue before we have a dialogue and we hashtag it and we do all kinds of things. So, um, so for me as an author, it's actually very exciting to, um, to think about people annotating my piece because so often um, what we're doing is we're I, I'm always writing in silence so I've written several books and you know sometimes people will write and ask me questions or I'll Skype with a class or something and so I get feedback that way but usually 
there's a resounding silence when you send something out. And so to actually have people write and to like you saying, you know, this is a journey or the importance of the story. And, um, you know, that is like, that's great feedback as a writer. And so I'm, um, and you know, if there's criticism, that's, uh, that's interesting too. It's always, uh, helps me think about the, the hard parts of, you know, of writing, right? Is um, how we communicated effectively um, what we want to say. And so uh, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, thank you. I, I think it does, I know everybody's going to talk in a second, but I mean, I think it does uh, shorten the distance between the writer and reader. And I think that's really powerful. It, it does, Kevin. And, and Linda, thank you again so much for your comments on anticipating uh, your engagement as an author in this new kind of media format. I'll mention briefly that we appreciate the support of Hypothesis in using this platform. They're a nonprofit organization. I think it's important to mention that. I think it's also important to note that the Hypothesis platform is open source. It's an open source technology that other people have taken and kind of reconfigured for their own uses. And so when we talk about the marginal syllabus as an open experiment in educator learning, uh, this is not using proprietary software. Uh, there's very much an ethos of cultivating open approaches to, again, practice and even using articles like Linda's uh, really as an open educational resource that then becomes the context for a conversation. It turns a text into a context through this uh, social collaborative reading. Um, and, and, you know, it's great to hear that both Andrea and Kevin, in anticipating this conversation with Linda, you both printed out the article, as did I, and I also marked it up, and I'm taking notes on the back. And so these annotation practices, uh, they've been around for millennia, actually. People have been annotating and marking up each other's contributions across various cultural traditions for literally thousands of years. And so the ability to use a digital platform to do this work and then have an explicit partnership with an author like Linda to say, do we have your permission to mark up your text as a conversation and do so in a way that's oriented again towards uh, the types of issues of equity and social justice that we've been discussing. Again, that's a core commitment of this effort and I'm glad that it resonates with readers and contributors like Andrea and Kevin who find these conversations to be meaningful. Well, I also, I love that you raised all those points about hypothesis because there are other tools that, um, you know, are not open source and are not nonprofit. And so one of the things about when we're talking about not being neutral in our classrooms, as Joe was talking about er earlier, we even down to the software we use to have these conversations become a stance in terms of, am I supporting open practices on the web or Am I setting my students up for becoming data points for some corporation? Am I, I like joke around like, I don't want to turn into a corporate shell for these technologies. It's always the danger uh, because it, the tools are exciting and they are interesting and they do open up other opportunities because without a digital annotation opportunity, Remy, Remy's and, and Joe's and um, Kevin's annotations would just die on the page like no one would ever see them and so uh, I think that that's really fascinating to me the way that we can network in different ways and the other thing 
that um, what I was thinking about was <laughs> I've been like doing book snaps lately, you guys, where I take a picture of the printed page and then annotate on my screen and then share that out. So like it's even becoming even crazier when you start thinking the way that these are sort of informing one another and what it does take uh, for when Linda was giving that, because I've done that too, where you print it out really big and you're having this silent conversation and writing into it. That's what that facilitates is a certain kind of collaboration and conversation because there's synchronicity and we're in the same space and we can in, have that physical, tangible aspect to it. But you know, I live in Michigan. Sometimes it snows and we can't be together, <laughs> you know? Um, sometimes we ha don't have enough subs. And so I can't get with teachers because there's a sub shortage and they can't be released from their classroom or a district will say, we're not letting anyone out for professional development. They have to do it after school or on a Saturday. And so then when time becomes that constraint, what a tool like Hypothesis can open up is the very same idea that you're doing with your students face-to-face, -face, Linda, but you're taking away the constraint of time because people can come in at whatever moment they are. And of course, if you're the first one in, it's not as much fun as when you're coming in in the middle, even the last one, because then no one responds to you. Like first and last are kind of the worst, but if you can just get that middle part, you know, then it gets really exciting. Everyone has to go first and last sometimes, I suppose. But if I could say, I think that this is a really important piece. Um, I'm, I'm very excited to use it, not just with adults, but with students, because I think that um, that reading and writing, I mean, I said, you know, I write, I write, I'm an editor for Rethinking Schools, and so I write a lot, um, and it's often um, by myself. But the great thing I have, both through the writing project and through Rethinking Schools, is I have a collaborative community that I'm always sharing my writing with. But what I like about this is reading is also, a, you know, it's a, a something we do on our own. And this opens up the, the doors to make that much more an invitation. And I think about the students who aren't quite sure, how do I read a text? And that, um, that's something like hypothesis, but you know, I mean, what we do on the paper is teaching them how other people have read this. And so it's a, it's a conversation with the book or with the article, it's a conversation with each other but it's also a teaching methodology. And so I'm thinking about this new piece that I'm working on. Um, it's by Willow Pinagree, who is from the Wind River Reservation, where he's talking back to, um, he's talking back to um, a news broadcast about um, um, negative aspects of his reservation. And I can't wait to do this and have students all over talking back to Willow about his piece and also them bringing in their stories because our school was always one that had negative aspects that were always in the newspaper. And so how have we, what are the stories that we have shared about it? So it just opens up the possibility to have conversations, as you said, across the country. Um, it doesn't have to all be at the same time but not just with adults, but also with students. I think this is a very exciting technology. So I'm, thank you for inviting me in.
Absolutely. I think one of the things that resonates with me is the notion that, you know, like writing, reading is also can also be a collaborative process. And I think when I annotate a piece like this, and I have also printed it out and sort of done my first round of annotations, I find myself sort of like thinking about um, like multiple draft readings, the idea that I'm reading something multiple times and often sort of gaining something new each time. And I find that sort of my first round of annotations maybe help me understand a piece, but I now I'm looking forward to something I'll, I'll mark up publicly. And so I'm sort of thinking like, which annotations make the cut and how might they sort of maybe look more digitally sort of like engaging in the margins, things like that. So I'm wondering in terms of like Andrea and Kevin, have you given any thought to like, which of your annotations do you feel like is, is important or has potential or something like that? Maybe we could get into like some of the specific things you wrote in the margins. Uh, that's a really good, that's a really good point. I, I guess I hadn't really thought of that. Uh, so I'm just thinking of your idea of, um, I'll kind of share, I guess, something in a second, but that idea that when I did this, I was annotating just for myself. So like that audience of one. And when I'm in hypothesis or, you know, any, you know, we're doing the collaborative annotations, I'm writing for myself, but also other people to read, right? So I guess just like kind of writing as opposed to writing your journals, you know, your own personal diary uh, that nobody else sees as opposed to writing for in the middle or something like that, you know, your audience changes and how you look at what you're doing is very different. So yeah, it's kind of interesting. Um, well, I mean, I will definitely link to the blog post that I read this morning that connects right to Linda's piece. And I think, you know, that's a really um, important, powerful tool of digital annotation is the associative powers of pulling the audience, the readers into another direction uh, that might be helpful as well. Um, and, um, you know, some of my doodles, I think I can see being kind of, I mean, I, I like to add images, you know, if you guys are kind of watching, right? <laughs> and I kind of wish that other people using hypothesis would do, I've talked to Remy about this a little bit. Uh, I wish they, other people would do more multimedia instead of just text. Um, but I also understand that, you know, people are kind of making their way into the tool as well. But I think that idea of audio and video and visual connections to the text are really powerful. So um, I'll be trying to figure out ways to just, you know, take some of these doodles and make them a little more refined, I guess. So I think that that will be my like stretch goal for the next round of annotations, Kevin, is to take up your challenge to do more visuals. Um, because I also tend towards visual annotation too. Like my annotations aren't usually in words. Actually, I like do a lot of just doodles and they mean things to me, but they don't, <laughs> I'm not sure anyone else coming behind me would be like, she was bored in a meeting or something, but they really do have meaning for me. And uh, I love, I was thinking about this earlier too, about the way that um, the reading and the writing becomes so closely aligned when you're doing sort of social reading, because of course we're, thinking of our audience. And so for me, I'm always thinking of like, what provocative question can I throw down in this? So this thing pinged for me, I found it interesting in the text. Uh, for instance, I'll even give an example, which is, um, and I don't actually have my annotations in front of me, but um, I have the PDF, but at the very end where Linda writes about um, we can choose to push back against the disadvantaged narratives and mandates that continue to lurk in our schools, that whole thing, and that we actually have more space than we allow ourselves. 
Um, that whole last paragraph or two about taking up just a little bit more space and wiggle room within um, a system that can feel oppressive sometimes. When I'm working with teachers, I often say, well, who, who is the person who told you you couldn't do that? I like, tell me their names so I can follow up with them because I want to hear why, right? I'm working with your district and like, who's told you that? <laughs> and a lot of times it's sort of our own self norming. Like we're norming to each other in this sort of vague sense that we're supposed to do something. And, and really there is a little bit more space that we could be taking up. And that's, you know, again, back to that sort of inquiry stance that comes with reflecting on our practice. Like, oh, I do actually have a little more wiggle room that I'm not taking. And it's really my own my stance that I've approached these students that's preventing me from really helping facilitate learning in a different way. Um, and so, you know, when I'm thinking about that in terms of then when I move into hypothesis, you know, I'm going to, my annotations tend to be questions like how can I take up more space in my classroom in the way that Linda modeled for me in this vignette um, in order to get to these goals of social justice and equity that I'm I'm craving but feel the constraints um, and how can I turn those constraints into enabling constraints um, how can that struggle become productive struggle all of those ways that we sort of turn it from a deficit model to an asset model uh, in these scenarios and so that's really where I'm gonna be looking but I'm also like I said I'm gonna try and do it in a meme or something I, I would just like to say, I love that. Um, I think that, you know, I mean, that piece that you picked up there, because I think that, um, that so often we are constrained. I mean, that, and I, you know, in fact, in our writing project, we have the four-week summer institute, and then we have a year-long practicum, which we call Keeping True North, because too often when we come back into our schools and our classrooms, we revert to this norm which was kind of the way we were taught um, or the way that things are done in our departments and that, yeah, and, and who is saying that we have to do that? And yet there's so much returning to a canon that is outdated and returning to practices that no longer serve the students that we have. And so um, I just, I really appreciate you picking that up. I doodled that section. Let's see if I can get it in there. Where am I? Let me get my glasses on. Yeah, I know. It's really hard to see, but the kind of expanding out the space. <laughs> I love your doodle. It's, it's, it's visual. Kevin, I love it. <laughs> you can just take a picture of it and stick it you in. You know, the... I was just thinking I should just take pictures and, you know, I'll be done. Yeah, you'll be, check. Bring <laughs> your own gift. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's hilarious. That's awesome. I, I hope that somehow in the digital representation, the actual doodle still, you know, maintains its integrity or gets shared with a broader audience. So, Ramey, I'm curious. I know that in addition to being the researcher and part of, you know, and co-organizer of this, you're also a reader. So, I'm curious sort of like what you've got in the margins and what you're thinking about, you know, in terms of like an annotation that might make the cut here. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, you know, I also, not surprisingly, also annotated that very last bit of, uh, of, of Linda's article, that last paragraph is, is very, very compelling. 
Um, but, you know, I'd like to, I, I, you know, in terms of one that I think I'll bring into the digital space from my own chicken scratch here on this type of page, in one of the early um, sections of Linda's article, she talks about creating the classroom of my imagination. And it's a section where she introduces and talks in more detail about notions of critical literacy. And there was a sentence that really stood out to me where she writes, I try to make my literacy work a sustained argument against inequality and injustice. And I think that that sentence for me speaks very clearly to two ideas that, that I found to be motivating in terms of, again, being a kind of curator of this of this open learning effort which is one it reminds me of why this is marginal work and why this work has connections to notions of marginality that a sustained argument against inequality and against injustice really brings a sense of, of action it brings a sense of movement it suggests that there's a center which may not be welcoming to everyone there's a center of of, of, of unequal access, of participation that is stratified, and certainly of, of social effects that in a pedagogical sense require some kind of disturbing. So I think that was very powerful for me to, to get a sense of, of, of Linda's kind of sustained argument and her literacy work as, as a kind of means of, of, of that. And it also, of course, reminded me of what some other scholars and educators, teacher educators are talking about now in terms of culturally sustaining pedagogy and of pedagogy that really not only draws upon but honors and seeks to extend the, the cultural um, values and heritages of various students as a way of sustaining more equitable work within and beyond schools and within and beyond classrooms. And so I think that some jumble of, of, of that will find its way from my chicken scratch notes into the digital version. But that sense about a sustained argument against inequality and injustice really resonated with me very powerfully. So like Andrea, I sometimes, I've been thinking about um, the, the notes I put in the margins that might turn into a, you know, that were questions to begin with, but also might turn into reflective questions for teachers that make that, that marginal space an opportunity for them to, you know, to talk about their practice or to reflect on practice a little bit. And so uh, one, of the, one of the questions I wrote that, that I, I like, even as I look, at, look back at it and think, oh, you know, how might, I, how might I tinker with that to invite teacher reflection is on the very, you know, on the very first page of the article, um, Linda wrote, when I stopped attending to test scores and started listening to the music of my students' voices and seeing them as more than a score, I increased my capacity to engage them. I, I knew what didn't work, but I still didn't know what did work. And what I wrote in the margins was, what does focusing on a score take out of focus? And I thought that was the, that's something that maybe is an invitational question that people can reflect on, you know, because it certainly, you know, makes me mindful of score pressure that I always hope is like, you know, way smaller in my own practice than like relationship pressure and pressure to, you know, honor a student's like natural curiosity and their interests. But, you know, I know, that, but still I feel score pressure and I wonder like, what does that sometimes take out of focus for me? But I also know that other people will, 
will read that line differently. And also they'll, they'll speak back to score pressure differently. So I'm curious about that one. I love that question. You better put that in there, Joe. No, I appreciate that. Um, let's see. So, yeah, and the other, I guess the other thing to say is, um, let's see, about that. I think the other thing that comes out of focus for me sometimes, or that can come, come out of focus for me sometimes, is just like, another reason I think this power, this project is powerful is like, as a white educator who, you know, from the bulk of my career, I've been working with students in very diverse, diverse classrooms. And when I focus too much on scores, I often just like forget the learner in me. And I'm not, you know, I'm a novice at navigating different cultural relationships and knowing how to work well across cultural barriers and with students who with vastly different backgrounds than my own. And sometimes when I get too score focused, I can forget about the fact that, you know, I have to really be, you know, uh, I have to, I have to sort of lead with the fact that, you know, I'm going to step in all kinds of buckets as a white guy teaching people from other cultures. And I almost have to lead with a little bit of apology there that what I'm going to, the things I'm going to do, I'm going to present texts. I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to call on kids. And that, you know, the fact that we're all from different, cultural backgrounds or we might be from different racial backgrounds means I'm going to make all kinds of mistakes. And so I, if I get too score focused, I can sometimes forget like the real learning opportunity that's there for me every day when I, you know, meet in a culturally diverse room, you know, with a bunch of learners with awesome interests. Uh, I love that, Joe. I love the way that this conversation keeps coming back to the way that uh, we recognize the ways in which we remain humble, right? But so in our classrooms, the, really the way that we grow as educators is by no, noticing where we're falling short and that it's not a failure, but rather an opportunity to grow. And so in the same way that we're approaching our students with that sort of asset mindset it's approaching ourselves with it too because I know I can get really perfectionistic like oh I didn't do that well enough or I could have done better I could have handled that differently or I failed that you know I failed that child that beautiful child and I failed them in that moment um and really what those for us too is the lead learners in our classroom we're modeling for our students how to continue to grow in that way and I, I also wanted to come back to this idea of like reading and rereading in terms of how we think about going public with our practice. I had two kind of thoughts pop up as everybody was talking, which is for Linda as a writer, you know, thinking about like your audience. I mean, how is it going to change now as writers when we're thinking not only is someone like getting this in a traditional journal format, but then it might be online eventually in a collaborative conversation space. I'm not sure I've really made that shift in my own understanding of how I write uh, for publication myself. So I'm kind of like noodling on that. I don't really have an answer for it. But the other thing that it occurs to me is I read this like I don't know, maybe you guys remember this, but like, I remember there's some like crazy thing that we all read together, but I can never find 
the genesis of this quote, but, um, or the source of this quote, but it was something about how reading is an act of love, but rereading on the internet especially is like the greatest act of love we could ever give a piece of writing because there's so much competition for our attention and so that when you intentionally sit down and read something all the way through but then to like go back to it and then add annotations to it and then have conversations on those annotations like what kind of powerful engagement are we talking about when you know even tweets sometimes don't get read and they're only 280 characters now. Um, so I don't know, some things that are occurring to me about really what kind of demands we're placing both on readers and writers and, and what possibilities are there and also sort of, wow, that is this kind of like deep that we're doing this. So I don't know, I don't have any answers. Yeah, deep indeed. And we, we've kind of used the analogy that it's a geeky book club. And I think one of the, one of the places we, we want to think through this process is how do, we, how do we respectfully invite an author into the geeky book club and not, too much, not talk too much about them like they're not in the room and continue to ask them. So I guess I want to give Linda sort of the first chance to have the last word. And so we'd lo I'd love to hear your reflections on this conversation and maybe what you're looking forward to, Linda. And then if I could just, after that, we, if we could just kind of like ping around, maybe everyone else can have a, a brief last word. And I think we're, we're nearing the end. So, so Linda, I'm interested in your sort of last takeaway or reflections from this convo and what you're looking forward to. Well, I think that one of the things um, is that as an author, I think it is amazing to have an opportunity to have conversations about your work while you're in the room, <laughs> you know? And so I think that that's, um, that, that for me, it's the best kind of thing that an author can have, especially after it's been published because you've already worked with, you know, your, your crew. Um, but the other thing that just for me comes up from this is that, um, you know, that the importance of social justice education. And so being really honored to have had, to have my article out there in that, in that respect, because I think that we really do need to change um, the way education is happening and that, um, that it feel, you know, and that's bringing people in from the margins, but also thinking about who has been in the margins and how our education system has allowed people to stay in the margins and has taught them that they don't belong on the page. And so I just, I feel that um, buoyed by this conversation um, that we are, that we're really thinking about um, taking the focus off of the test scores about, um, about who needs to be invited into conversation. So, um, so I'm just thankful to be part of this um, today. And, um, and I look forward to reading um, the notes and of trying hypothesis myself. Terrific. Andrea, would you share maybe a last, last word or takeaway? Oh, I'm just always impressed by how smart everyone I get to work with is and that I got, I just get to be part of this conversation and that we're going to be having more further conversations with so many other people in the margins and, you know, maybe the margins, like I get what you're saying, you know, who's in the margins, who's allowed to be here, but 
I don't know, sometimes fantastic things are happening in the margins. So I'm not too sad about being over there. <laughs> but you're right, we do need to bring these issues to the fore and really make sure that we're serving all of our students. So that's, I'm just happy to be here. Oh, Kevin, how about you? Um, I was thinking of um, Linda uh, in the kind of middle of your piece. Um, you wrote about um, after all your students shared their stories and laughed and cried and kind of created community that uh, you talked about the collective text that the kind of, uh, you know, thinking about um, what everyone heard from each other and how to pull that together into the kind of story. And I was thinking, you know, that's kind of what we're gonna be doing with your piece is, uh, you know, we're gonna be pulling our stories into your story and, you know, creating a kind of bigger version of that collective text that began with your students' stories. And, and that's really powerful, I think, in a lot of ways. And, you know, a year, two years from now, like people could still come back, I think, to the same text and add annotations, right? So it's not gonna die after that kind of one week of, uh, of being promoted to educator innovator. Um, it'll be there for other teachers and others to discover and to continue that conversation whenever they find it and get engaged in it. And, you know, um, I can see, you know, some of these pieces, um, that are part of this project uh, being maybe part of our writing project uh, engagement with teachers as well. So I think that's really powerful. And that collective stories stays with me. I'm going to just pick right up on that um, and thank Linda for being our partner author this month. It's just a pleasure, Linda, to connect with you, to connect your writing and your perspective to this effort. Uh, we're just so thankful. Um, and, and to then extend that note of thanks, Linda, from you to all the various partner authors who we've worked with in the last academic year and who we will be working with throughout this academic year as well, which I think then connects nicely to Kevin's point about the collective text. These are syllabi, and the 2016-17 syllabi had a variety of conversations and a variety of partner offers as well, the writing our civic futures syllabi during this academic year. And those, those syllabi are collective texts that will, as Kevin was saying, live on. Um, so again, Linda, thank you for contributing your expertise and deep knowledge to the collective texts of these conversations. The last thing I'll say is to re-echo something that a Andrea mentioned, which is the question, what am I bringing to it? Um, and I hope that other readers and other annotators ask the question that Andrew is challenging all of us to ask, which is, what am I bringing to it? And I hope that other folks join us with hypothesis in the text margins and bring their own uh, voice and opinion and expertise. Fantastic. So one last big thanks to everybody who's participated in this webinar and looking forward to seeing you all in the margins. Um, a final word is if you'd like to keep up to date on future opportunities, don't forget to sign up for the monthly newsletter at educatorinnovator.org and follow Educator Innovator on Twitter at, at innovates underscore ed. So thanks again. <laughs>